Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are serving up part two of my interview with Mindy Johnson, the author of Ink and Paint, the women of Walt Disney's animation. And she is so full of information that we very easily filled two episodes with it. And I think there are two episodes that both run a little longer than our normal average. Back in part one, Mindy busted some myths, and there's more of that on the way today. And that includes the idea that women in the early days of animation were just tracers and not accomplished artists in their own rights. So we will jump right in. Will you talk a little bit about what the hiring process was like for the women that ended up in the ink and paint department and then what their day-to-day jobs were like? Yeah, and it's important to note that uh, there's a lot of material out there that states that that was the only place women could work. There's a crazy letter from the Snow White days that circulates on the internet. And there are a couple of things that need to be, well, first of all, placed in context about that. It was the 1930s. That was the prevailing attitude. But the other thing that's important to understand is this was a form letter that was actually created in the late 20s because by that time, the Mickey and Minnie cartoons had become worldwide phenomenons. And the little tiny studio on the Hyperion Avenue in Los Feliz, California, was getting inundated with fan mail and people wanting to, oh, I want to work there. I've got to do this. Plus, it was the Depression. So it's that much, you know, any kind of job anywhere was, you know, vital, critical. But if you were working at Disney Studios, you were certainly, they didn't feel the immediate effects of the Depression as other places did in the country. It was a boomtown. So they were getting inundated. People would literally show up at the front door. I got a letter from you. You know, I'm I'm ready to work. But yet there was no job because they just said, thank you for sending it, but we're not hiring at this time. So they changed their generic form letters to state, you know, please, it's a polite thank you, but please go away. (laughs) They weren't paying to have people come out. And certainly they were very talented people, but Again, it was the 1930s, and the men were doing the animation. It was a boys' club at that point. And women's roles were seen as secondary. And as women, we tend to not talk about our work. It was a man's world at that time. And so women really were, they're a poor secretary somewhere typed it out saying women didn't do any of the creative work, but yet this was a secretary who had no understanding of what was going on over in that department, nor was it in the general mindset to speak about that. But it's also important to note that these were not, there was a myth going around that, oh, they picked women up off the street, my sister's cousin got in there, anybody could train. No, you had to come in, and this was Hazel Sewell establishing this. Tuesday mornings, you had to bring in your portfolio. And they were always on scramble trying to find qualified, talented personnel, artists. They sent out at various times uh, postcards and did radio announcements. We found the script for a radio broadcast to the 40s and 50s, picking all women artists, please come down. So there was segregation in terms of roles and gender. (laughs) 
but they were seeking women artists. There are, in fact, ads that were placed. Girl artists wanted. So for women in the 1930s, if you've studied art in any way, shape, or form, and there were wonderful art schools and institutions, this was a major plus. There were also in the newspapers, you had women columns for personnel and men columns for personnel. So that's, again, why you have to look at this from a contextualized manner, because it was very different then. So Tuesday mornings, if people came at any other point, show up Tuesday mornings, and that's when Hazel and her team would review applicants and take a look at their portfolios. And more often than not, if you had the talent, you were hired right on the spot. And you had to begin by going through training. And again, Hazel Sewell and her teams established training for the women in these roles. So the misconception is that, oh, they taught people how to hold a paintbrush. That's what the training was. And they painted by number. Nothing could be further from the truth. They were brought in as artists. They had to prove they were artists. And they were trained in the specific artistry and tools and materials required for working with celluloid and the characterizations of what they were trying to accomplish to achieve a unified filmic experience. So therein is the difference in how the training was laid out. And that was true for animators as well. Walt also started animation training. And animators could come in. They could be the most brilliant fine artists, men or women. And they still had to go through an animation training program. Now, it's in the 30s that women were funneled into the ink and paint roles, but by the late 30s, we see change happening. Retta Scott, Mildred Rossi, Ethel Colsar, there Viola Anderson. There were a number of women who came in in the late 30s after the success of Snow White. Again, it's a boom town at that little studio, and it's just mushrooming into productions and buildings and personnel, and the staff grew so large that Walt grumbled about not being able to say hello to everybody personally because he couldn't take the time to get to know everyone because there was so much going on and so many people working there. When you look at what bits of footage we have, you see women, the numbers of women were always higher than the national average for women in industry. Wherever those numbers landed, Disney was always anywhere from three to five or higher percent higher than the national industry of other industries where women were. So their presence was always there from the very beginning. And as these various films are expanding, Walt seeing that, oh, there's a big wider range of stories we can and should be telling in a feature-length forum. So Retta Scott is often credited as the first female animator, but we do have other women in at the studio doing what was called color animation. And there are great examples of that in Fantasia and some elements in Pinocchio, but they're more visibly present in Fantasia. The Takata and Fugue sequence, you have sort of a pastel shapes and colors and forms moving on the screen. That's all done by women. Mildred Rossi, Ethel Colsar, and, and the women of the paint lab developed a, a really amazing technique where they could uh, have adhere chalk pastel to celluloid directly. And the women were animating the color directly on the celluloid. So amazing. No pencils. Ugh. Yeah. Um. And then you get people like Retta Scott wielding a pencil, and that woman had power in her drawings. 
And so much so they would put her drawings in the room and no one could tell. And finally someone said, these are great. Who did these? Retta, Retta Scott. She was sort of plucked from Chenard Art Institute. They saw the talent in her, brought her in to do some story concept pieces, but then moved her into animation. And she ended up doing one of the most powerful sequences in Bambi, the dogfight sequence. She was a just a tremendous expert on animals and just these ferocious dogs. Uh, I think she guesstimated she did over 35,000 dog drawings oh my to get that sequence down. She had a little bit of a learning curve, and there were a couple of other male animators who stepped in to kind of help her with timing. But her drawings and her art- artistry is definitely there on the screen. And she's also the first woman animator to get a credit. At Disney, we have other early women animators in uh, other shorts, but in terms of feature-length animation, she's first get a credit. So that's why often people have presumed she's the one and only. But there were many others uh, working at around that time. And if we count color animation, Mildred Rossi is more than likely the first. But it's a color animation process, uh, so you know different mediums, but still the same thing. And we could even go earlier to the women doing the blend technique on Snow White, because that, again, is early color animation. They're moving that color across each cell, so it's, you know, just as you would a pencil drawing. Right. Uh, You have so many great stories about all of these women that really did change things significantly and contributed in ways that are not always recognized. But I wonder at what point in your research, was there a moment of revelation of just how massive um, and vital the role of women was to a lot of these films that have been famous forever and aren't really thought of necessarily as being the product of a, of a female workforce. Yeah, that was at my eight-month breakdown <laughs> where I panicked and called my editor and went, oh my gosh, I, this is, it was almost like an avalanche. It just hit me. And I even had some paradigms I had to undo because this narrative, this log line, and and here's where it, it's another part of what sort of the, when the avalanche hit, I started pulling out, and I, I'm so grateful for the volumes that are out there. Many by dear colleagues have done extraordinary work, but I began to quickly go to the index and start to, you know, short change it and, and go, okay, well, let's see where the women are. And you would find the same four or five women. Lillian and Edna Disney, and it was always Mr. the Mrs. Disney. That was always it. Oh, and his wife, Lillian. No mention, you know, the story of Lillian naming Mickey, is, uh, Mickey Mouse, is about it. No mention of the work that they did on those early uh, shorts. No mention at all. Lillian wouldn't cash her paychecks. If they were going to run short, Roy would not cash her paychecks so we can meet payroll. So she was working for free. Oh, my goodness. You know, it, at their kitchen tables till the wee hours trying to get these cells blackened in on the first Mickeys and Minis. Lillian and Edna were right there toe-to-toe from the very beginning. And yet they would always get reduced down or if they would be mentioned. So one of the other four or five women that would be in the indexes of a few books, would most books would be Margaret Winkler. She was the first female producer in the Producers Guild. She added a fictitious J to her name so she could operate her business gender neutral so no one would freak out that she was a woman. (laughs) And she single-handedly 
changed animation and turned it into a standard part of the theater-going experience so that audiences sought out the animation portion rather than... So she changed it from novelties. She put Felix the Cat on the map and made him a worldwide phenomenon. And she did the same with Walt Disney. So the animation industry owes itself to Margaret Winkler, and yet she's always reduced to just a sentence or two in most books out there. She's one of the handful of women at the early stages. And then, of course, Mary Blair, wonderful, amazing, extraordinary Mary Blair. But people often thought that she was the only female artist. Yes. And occasionally you'd get Retta Scott in there. So you'd get the same four or five women, and that would be it, aside from voice talent. That would be it. And I I thought, wait a second, there are far more women out here. There has to be more. And so thus began this five-year odyssey to get the book done, but the research still continues. So it's been seven years or more. (laughs) And there are new discoveries every day. Yeah. I'm doing some really deep digging into the earliest women. And it's incredible the work that they did in animation, and yet no credit, no acknowledgement, nothing. Yet. And that's going to change. Good. <laughs> Mindy incidentally said that we could cut that last sentence because she didn't want to come off as too braggadocious in her own words, but I really wanted to leave it in because as we're going to see in just a little while, her book project, which grew from just a tiny kernel of information to become something huge, really is changing how people look at Disney animation history. But for right now, we are going to pause for a quick sponsor break. We're going to jump right back in with Mindy here because she made a really good point while we were talking about why she wanted to include firsthand accounts in her book. It was important in working on the book to put it into as many firsthand accounts as possible. This is their story, not my story to be telling, but their story. And that was vital because I knew there would be a lot of people coming to challenge what I put across in the book. And I'm like, look, These are the voices of the women who were there. Uh, I do want to talk about sort of a controversial time during Walt Disney Studios, which was the uh, strike that took place in 1941. And I hoped that you would talk a little bit about the role of the women in the ink and paint department during that period and how that strike affected them going forward. Sure. Well, in 1941, the strike was a real challenging time for the studio and all, all overall, it, in fact, it lingered for decades. And many of the women, uh, either through their oral histories or the families or through those who were still with us, you could tell when I would ask about it. It was a tender, still a very tender time. It caused a major, it forever changed the industry. You know, you think what could have happened had things continued in the fracture that that caused. You know, I think it set things back by a decade or more. Um, even technologically, it set things back. But it caused rifts, long rifts. I wrote about what I had and what I could find and what people could speak about. And I was pleased to see when we went for final uh, reviews on the book that everything was retained. So this book holds probably the... Uh, There are other articles and other books 
about this era, but this holds the largest amount of firsthand from the women's perspective uh, accounts. And it was a, it was a very personal time for a lot of them in the ink and paint department. And we had keep in mind that women were in virtually every area. This is also the time where Walt announces he's on record. He began the animation training program for women. World War had already broken out in Europe, and he was seeing men leaving, and Walt sort of read the signs of what was going on overseas and began to prepare, recognizing that as men are going to be leaving, we need to keep the systems moving. So he began training some of his top inkers in the ink and paint departments. Keep in mind that these women, the inkers, where the animators had erasers, inkers went toe-to-toe with everything the animators were doing and working in ink without erasers. There's the great saying about Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in high heels. These women did everything the animators did on celluloid, which is like skating on ice, with ink pens, no erasers, and in high heels. So these women were remarkable with what they were doing. And Walt was exploring, transitioning them into animating. And so we have a training program that begins. And that was part of some of the early rifts that Art Babbitt and others were sort of spouting about that, hmm, you know, they're trying to train women to do our jobs and they're going to undercut them with pay so it'll be cheaper. And isn't that terrible? And Walt delivers a speech in February of 1941 saying, look, if a woman can do the job, she gets the pay. Hmm. Now, where is that stand today even, where women are paid 80 cents to a man's dollar, right? Yeah. That's very progressive and very groundbreaking. And so the women continued to train. And then as World War, we become involved in World War II, as that breaks out, Women then literally put down their pens and brushes and trained and, and picked up pencils and moved into animation. And even before the war, um, the inkers were in-betweening directly. The male in-betweeners with pencils and erasers were not able to get the legs on the deers and Bambi very clean. They would uh-huh. wobble too much. The lines would wobble because the girls would have to be matching what they were doing. So they just said, you know, let us do it. So they were in-betweening directly. So when you watch Bambi again, keep an eye on those deer legs. They don't move. And that's the women's work directly on the shelf. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so it's those kinds of things were in the ether. That's what was happening. Uh, there was a lot of confusion and miscommunication, um, angry voices. As the strike teams become organized, uh, many of the women, in fact, uh, one of the corridor heads of ink and paint and the special effects team, uh, there was a woman who was running the airbrush department. She had over 20 men and women working under her, Barbara Worth Baldwin. She took all of her teams out. They all went out on strike. Um, And, you know, again, that was their prerogative. And so it was a real bittersweet time. Um, Many people felt a tremendous loyalty to Walt, and, and he was trying to put the money back in to the studio. He had built this beautiful state-of-the-art studio so they would have comfortable environments to be working in. And many were a little frustrated with that. They liked the on-top-of-each-other hodgepodge of the Hyperion Studios, but it just wasn't going to work. 
So sadly, how streamlined things became with the studio created some problems and distance and confusion and labor issues. And keep in mind also that the other studios in town, other animation studios, had gone through similar rifes years prior to Disney. Disney was one of the last to hold out and also sort of the highest profile. So it's important to know that there were other studios that had gone through that, and there were some pretty strong-armed thugs that were pulling some things. But it did change things. Um, I tried to be as balanced with what I could get to show the fact that it was a difficult device of time. You had teams who, who stayed committed to Walt and who were in trying to work, and it was also a time where men had to pick up pens and brushes to help get those cells completed. So it was a real blurring of the lines. Um, it mandated the simplicity of Dumbo as supplies became, you know, with the war happening in Europe, supplies became scarcer and colors. The palette is very simple and basic because they couldn't get pigments, brushes. They were importing sable brushes from overseas, German pigments they couldn't get. So it had a, a pretty profound impact, and they had to sort of stay malleable and figure out how we're going to work with what we can get and what we can do. And so oftentimes it's rare to find an actual production cell from Dumbo because they were washed off as soon as they, you know, so their women's artistry went down the drain, literally. Oh, man. Yeah, what a weird, condensed time of just intense things happening all at once. Yeah. And, you know, you had, I think Ruthie Thompson talked about you had roommates where one would drive the other one in and drop, she was on strike and the other one was chose to cross the line. So she'd drop her off so she could go pick it and she'd cross the line and go in to go to work. Oh and then at the end of the day, pick her up and go home. And, you know, it was a, it was a very strange time, a sad time. It was it was uh, difficult for those who went out on strike. Um, it lasted several months. It, you know, people lost their homes. It was it was very difficult. We may have already touched on on ones that you would select, but I wanted to ask you what you would say are perhaps the key three to four moments in the evolution of roles for women at Disney Animation over the years. Hmm. Boy, that's a that's a tough one. I would say, surprisingly, the very beginning, I was thrilled when I had to sort of rethink about it and triple check it, that the very first employee was a woman um, and that women had always been there. And what was accomplished in that first 10 years, Hazel Sewell, I think, is probably one of the most unsung women in animation. She took from basic blackening, crude basic blackening, and in the span of under 10 years, transformed, visually transformed the visual experience of animation from black and white blackeners to the Rembrandt-esque quality of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And Walt gets the credit. And yes, understandably so, because he was pushing for that. But what Hazel and her teams accomplished, I was stunned when you look at that. And, and begin to sort of wrap your head around all that's accomplished, it, it's mind-blowing. And you look at that animation in that time period where it progresses from and to. So that's a key time period. 
I would also say the advent of geography. World War II is very big with Rosie the Riveters. We have Rosie the Riveter, Rosie's with pencils. The advent of geography, inking was a very costly, these women were premium artists and far more than what men were accomplishing with pencils because pencils have erasers and you had other artists coming in and cleaning up your line. So the fine artistry of inking, which the real zenith of that is Sleeping Beauty. And again, if you're watching that film, looking for the line artistry in there, it's again, just mind-blowing. But how pivotal that point is when, in order to save animation, truly, the advent of geography did in fact save that. But women moved into those front lines. It changes the artistry. But women were also there and working on those early xerography teams. And then I would say probably the third, and these are overarching changes for animation in general, is that digital advent. But it's important to note that women were right there at that moment and part of those teams as animation transforms into a digital art form. So just as their pivotal point for animation, it's important to remember women have always been there, specifically for women. I would say those early earliest years from about 27 to 37, Hazel Sewell and her teams. And this was also sort of occurring at other studios, but head and shoulders above all else. Hazel Sewell and her accomplishments were remarkable. You also have other independent women animators working at that time. Women are moving into animation in the 30s, so that's critical. The war had a very big impact in moving women into positions. Sadly, at the end of the war, again, it was society that said, okay, back to the kitchens. In fact, there were campaigns. The government issued campaigns about being housewives again so that they would free up the jobs for the men to come back and we could get back to making babies. (laughs) So that's the 1940s, which is a real crazy, strange anomaly of a time period. And then I would say for women, specifically the 70s, the the, uh, women's movement and getting women to wake up to who they are and their own discoveries of what they're doing. You see a tremendous rise in, interestingly enough, in the 1940s in divorces. Laws were very different. You had to prove infidelity. But by the 1970s and the changes to uh, that you could divorce for irreconcilable differences rather than proving infidelity or uh, other issues, um, that had a tremendous impact in freeing up women. You also have birth control, where women are changing and, and their lives are transitioning, and suddenly they can stave off having their families. And we see a tremendous rise in women getting their college degrees. It's in the 70s and 80s where the number of women enrolled in colleges evens out to men and in some places surpasses the number of men studying in school. So that's, again, why I had to put everything into context so you can understand where women are in terms of animation and that industry and the advances that occur and the opportunities occur for women. Society still had their hold, its hold on where women were and what they could do. And in many ways, we still have a lot of that to shake out of today. Coming up, we are going to talk about some of the more recent and very exciting developments for women in animation. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. (music) 
now Disney, uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios has its first woman chief creative officer, which is pretty exciting to me. Yes, um, very exciting. That yeah. was like, that that announcement really like was emotional when I heard it. It was surprising to me how deeply it moved me. I get emotional just talking about these women and I get people <laughs> coming up out of all ages, men and women, emotional about how come we don't know this? Right. And, and then pointing out that still today... I did an event about a year ago at the Motion Picture Academy and audible gasps from the industry in the room going, we had no idea. Mm-hmm. And and the course of change that that's helped, you know, the turning of the page helped to sort of flap that page over big time so that it, getting people to sort of wake up from this unconscious bias to realize there is this need for change and we are unconscious in how we move to this world about it and realizing that we still have those instances today where we have tremendous glass ceilings we have to break through. We have to change that unconscious preset of defaulting to the men and not thinking about, oh, well, where are the women and why don't we get women in and what can we do to get women in here? Because we've been missing out on half the sky bring John Lennon into this, you know, we, we have that we've, we've missed half of our human experience by not letting women come to the table or not recognizing what women have already brought to the table. That is one of the reasons I love your book. Thank you. I mean, I like, seriously, to me, I think it is so important. I think it should be part of college courses. I think it, it is a vitally important piece of education for anyone who is interested in animation, but for anyone who is interested in looking at just sort of how culture has been impacted and yet not acknowledged by women, which is fascinating, which is why I'm really excited about the next project that you told (laughs) me you're working on because it will educate the next generation. Will you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Well, a couple of things in terms of education. Um, We've just announced I'm teaching a class this fall at CalArts. Oh, so cool. On the history of women in animation. It's the first of its kind. And my book is the text. Yay! Me, I, I, get, I get emotional about it, too. Um, and it's going to go, you know, beyond as, you know, I'm doing deeper dives into the biographies of these women as much as I can at this point. So it's going to be ever-changing because the research is ongoing. Um, but I'm prepping for that right now, and it's we're opening it up to faculty and all students. They don't have to be animation students. They get priority, but they asked if it would be okay to open that up, and I said, absolutely, let's do it. Yes. So I'll be speaking to um, the history of women and other underrepresented groups within animation, primarily women, and their advent who they are as people taking a deeper dive into their accomplishments because some of the earliest women did so much even beyond animation. It's it's mind-blowing. And that leads me to, I'm currently working on a young reader's book called Pencils, Pens, and Brushes, Great Girls of Disney Animation. And this little treasured volume is a wonderful opportunity to go a little further into some of these remarkable women many of which not only accomplished remarkable advancements within animation and their roles within animation are so vital, but 
when you look at their lives beyond animation, both before coming to Disney Studios and beyond, it's incredible the caliber of these women. A couple of examples. Um, one woman, her name was Grace Huntington. She was the second woman to work in story at Disney Studios in the late 1930s. And while she was working there, sharp, amazing young girl who worked hard at coming in with new and fresh ideas and preparing her pitches, and she learned. She had to step right in in those pitch sessions, and the men would get very, you know, get up and act out the antics and things. She couldn't be a wallflower. She had to get out there and do it. Her brother was also a pilot, and she was fascinated with this idea of flight. Now, this is in the, you have to remember, things didn't move as lightning fast as they do today, and the allure of Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight was still a major thing, and so aviation took off, no pun intended. It literally just blossomed, and women were very excited about this new form of transportation. So Grace was fascinated with it, and her brother was getting his pilot license, and she thought, well, I could do that. While working at Disney Studios, she got her license. (laughs) And she'd always been fascinated as a young girl with Jules Verne's trip to the moon and other, you know, science fiction things. And and this was the late 30s. Had there been a space program, this woman would have been part of it. In fact, she sent correspondence to uh, the military in Washington inquiring about high altitude. She actually went on and trained full-time. She left Disney and trained full-time and broke a record in high-altitude flights for small aircraft and wanted to continue doing this. And she made queries to the military saying, look, I just broke this record. Here's the newspaper and documentation. And we got my flight recorder back, everything. You know, would you like to sponsor me? I'm, I'm here. Let's do more of this. No, thank you. You're a woman. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they wouldn't, yes. <sighs> she couldn't get work as a pilot because she was a woman. So she ended up training. She had to become a flight instructor. And the uh, aviation outfit that helped her train said, okay, you know, we'll keep you on. So here she had, she broke this record and still couldn't get work because she was a woman. But she was part of the earliest inklings of the space race and yet couldn't do anything with it and began working at Disney Studios. Oh, that's such a great story. It is. <laughs> I, I, I want to oh, There's such great there's stories. More. There's so much more. And, and to continue with aviation, we had the, the first woman to get her pilot's license in Connecticut was a woman by the name of Mary Goodrich. And she went on and uh, became the first person to fly solo to Cuba and was the first person to have a syndicated aviation column. She was the first woman reporter at her local newspaper and then got a syndicated aviation column because they said, oh, we need someone to write this. If you get your pilot's license, maybe you could do that. <laughs> and so she did. And sadly, then when her eyesight went bad, she ended up moving, making her way out to California and got a job. She established the first story research department at the Disney Studios in 1938 and 
in my lectures, I'll say, well, that was the internet of the 1930s. What <laughs> she and her team did, they would use these really amazing things called books, and they would research and find out, you know, well, what's a deer's habitat look like? And for a Pinocchio, what, what would it look like inside of a whale? And how would you, you know, answering those questions so that the artist could create these worlds and characters that we know and love. So she was pretty remarkable in her own right and, and the advent of flight. She also flew on the Hindenburg. Oh my goodness. Made one of the, the tra- one of the transatlantic passages on the Hindenburg. I think it was the, the, uh, before it, like one or two of the passages before it blew up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's really, I mean, these women were right there at these, Mary Costa, our wonderful voice of Princess Aurora went on and had, she was one of the leading mezzo-sopranos in opera, the grand world of opera, and performed on every opera stage in the world. And yet no one knows that. Yeah. Unless you're an opera fan. Yeah. And the opera fans don't know about her work in animation. That always cracks me up because I did know that about her. And it does always strike me as sort of hilarious when you watch somebody who knows one part of her career and someone knows the other meet each other. And they're like, no, she was a singer. And it's like, no, no, no. Is it a different Mary Costa? No. (laughs) Right. Because, again, nothing had been put down in word. There was no place to go to to get the sort of the definitive answer on it. And and realize, too, as big and monstrous as that book is, and it had to be, it still is scratching a rich, incredible, a cavernous surface to who these women were, what they accomplished, the epic saga of a hundred years of our animated, collective animated past. And women have always been there. So it's it's at least a go-to place. It's a reference. It's a Deep dive, it's a light magazine read, it's, it's a textbook. So I'll be using that, my book, as sort of the text for the CalArts class that I'll be teaching. And uh, and sort of, I'm currently working on more material, a little more involved on women, not only at Disney, but beyond Disney. But the records are hard to find because, again, history is preserved, written about, recorded, and archived from a male perspective. So it's one paragraph here and two sentences there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, contacting someone's relative and their accounts and digging under beds and into closets <laughs> and <laughs> bankers' boxes to, to piece this together. And I, I really was on the cusp of, you know, I kept thinking, oh, had I started a year sooner, how many more women I could have gotten to? So it is. It's it's a puzzle that still has many pieces missing, but they're coming together. And uh, finally, we have a framework, we have a platform, we have a place to go to to begin to understand this. And the research continues, so I'm 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 at it. <laughs> so any funding or resources are a little hard to come by, but if if I may make an open call out, if anybody knows or has a relative or can think of anything, please find me. I, uh, my website is mindyjohnsoncreative.com, and you can find me there. I'm on Facebook, and that has worked. I've actually had, since the book, the first printing, we're now in a second printing and reaching towards a third printing. Um, since the first printing came out, a couple of families reached out and said, that's my mother who's unidentified on this page, and they are now identified in the 
subsequent printings. So oh, that's so fantastic. Exciting. Yeah, and new discoveries all along. We'll make sure we include your website address in the show notes as well so people Thank can you. easily like click it. through and get it. Um, I feel like it's so wonderful that this book, which could easily be for someone, the culmination of their work is in fact for you just a jumping off point. I love it so much. <laughs> that became very, uh, that was also part of that avalanche. <laughs> it's like, this is never going to stop. No. <laughs> Which is great. I'm now jealous of all the students at CalArts a little bit because I think oh. that course sounds amazing. Um, Mindy, thank you so much. I'm just, I feel so lucky to get to spend this time learning from you. Thank you. Well, it's a joy. And a big part of this has been getting the message out and helping to change this narrative about women and their roles and the presence that they've had and their contributions to our animated and collective entertainment past. It it changes things to the point we think today, where we are at today is vital and important. But what's important to understand is that we have this rich, amazing past, to sh- incredible shoulders to stand on. And we don't have to get out there and reinvent the wheel. We don't have to blaze as many trails as we thought we had to. A large part of the lifting has been done. We failed in recognizing that collectively, men and women. We failed at that, and we can change that now. So that's what's important here is that as we move forward, as we change the mindset of studios and executives and audiences to look for the stories that women can bring to our world, it's also on us to keep moving forward, keep this documented, keep it recorded, keep it balanced so that we don't lose this history, that we keep it moving forward. And as we move into a digital age, we don't have those pieces of paper to randomly find that, that are tucked under beds. So it's important to keep the documentation fresh, restored, and placed within a balanced context. I remain so delighted, and I think it is so incredibly cool that Mindy's work has now led to a new class at CalArts. Uh, I think it's fabulous that people are going to learn this part of the story that has not always been common knowledge at all, even among people who love animation and have studied its history. Uh, My sincerest thanks to Mindy for taking almost two hours to share her vast and incredible knowledge and passion with me. I know she has some new stuff on the horizon. We will keep you posted as those things get announced. Yeah, you can find Mindy online at mindyjohnsoncreative.com. That's Mindy, M-I-N-D-Y. We'll be sure to include that link in the show notes as well. Do you have some listener mail to take us out? I do. Our last listener mail was a continuation of the discussion of Rarebit. We're kind of doing a similar thing on this one in that it is a continuation of the discussion of the Georgia Gold Rush. Uh, This is from our listener, Terry, who wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I greatly enjoy the show, and I've been listening for several years. I grew up in Cobb County, Georgia, and we had Georgia history in the sixth grade. And we did talk about the Dahlonega Gold Rush as well as the Trail of Tears. Two things I wanted to add about the episode. One, the Georgia Capitol building in Atlanta is covered in gold leaf from Dahlonega and Lumpkin County. I knew that, but did not include it in the episode because then it got into a whole other story. Uh, That dome was first gilded in the 1950s and was re-gilded in the 1970s. 
For that reason, the Capitol building is referred to as the Gold Dome. Reporters have long referred to legislation and politics in Georgia as happening under the Gold Dome. Uh, Yeah, that's just like an interesting part of like local cultural history and goings-on that people may not know if they have never been to Atlanta. If you drive through Atlanta, you see that building with the big gold dome. That is, in fact, the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Terry says, I currently live in Villa Rica, Georgia, and there was a modest gold rush in Villa Rica prior to Dahlonega and White County, the other rival for the title. Villa Rica has its own gold rush museum and festival, and there are still people who pan for gold in the area, but they do not turn up as much as in the Dahlonega area. Uh, and then Terry gave us some show suggestions. So, um Thank you so much, Terry. I wanted to mention this because I didn't mention the Capitol, really, and that is a fascinating landmark. And also, I did not know about Villa Rica having had a minor gold rush, so they were happening everywhere. We didn't even know it. Yeah, we've also gotten a couple of, like, tweets about whether the gold find we talked about in North Carolina should be framed as, like, an earlier gold rush. Um don't know who sets the rule for what's a rush and what isn't. Yeah, I don't either. I presume it's a volume thing, and it, it also becomes a matter of, like, is the rush based on the amount of gold or the amount of people that freak out about it? Mm-hmm. Because that's a whole other uh, thing. I did not see anything, and again, this could just be, like, a gap in in places I looked that suggested that the North Carolina finds were considered a rush, Perhaps people local to that area would consider them so. Uh, But yeah, I don't. Usually the Dahlonega one is kind of listed as the first one in the country, the first true gold rush, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. Again, we know we're in slippery, not always clearly defined territory. But then they all got overshadowed by California anyway. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media under the handle Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is also where you will find the show and all of its archives and show notes. Uh, If you would like to subscribe to us, we highly encourage you to do so. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. So we'll hope to see you there. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 